Okay, howdy folks, welcome to Down with the Dharma podcast. So today my friend Dot Fan is joining us, and we're going to be talking about my dissertation, which just recently got completed. Um, so we're going to do a series of podcasts where we talk about each chapter of the dissertation. And so we're going to start, obviously, with chapter one. Um, but first, before we do that, I'd just like to introduce uh, Dot. So Dot, uh, Dot and I used to be monks with Thich Nhat Hanh. We ordained uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh in Plum Village at his monastery in France. And so we practiced together there. And then um, I spent, I think we spent some time together at in France. And then we were going to different monasteries that was part of Thai's tradition. Um, and then we both, after being monks for a number of years, we both uh, transitioned back into lay life. And so uh, we're both originally growing up in Texas, but then Dot uh, moved to France. Um, that's where he lives now. And he... Um, co-founded a uh, Dharma community in France. Called, it's called the Blue Cedar. Is that right? How do you say it? Yes, the Blue yeah. Cedars. Yes. In, in French, how do you say it? Le Cedre Bleu. Right. Sounds better in French. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> um, um, so you want, do you want to say that? Like what? Uh, I know when you first went to France, you were teaching English and your wife was working as a nurse. Your wife was also a, used to be a nun with Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, yes. So how did you how did you transition from teaching English to teaching meditation, teaching the Dharma and setting up your community? Well, when I, as you know, when I left the monastery, we were both, I, I guess, um, I think I received my full ordination maybe before you, huh? Yeah. And then after you, so after my full ordination, I sort of made the the vow to go back, go back into society. Um, as we know, like in the Taming the Ox, the tenth stage is um, going back to the marketplace. So, and in my own training, as you know, in Plum Village, we had Titnat uh, Han, which was the the founder and the main teacher but there was also Tayak Tan which was um, also a, a master in his own right who was the the abbot of Deer Park Monastery that passed away in 2001. I'd had passed, passed many years with him especially at the end of his life and what I was more interested in at that point was more kind of like living Zen but in a very ordinary way not as a, in the form of a monk anymore, but even a nameless form, you know, not even mentioning what Zen is about. But one of the questions that I asked Tai at the end of his life, Tai Yaktan, this is, this is, is what, what is the true essence of Zen? And Tai Yaktan told me, well, if you want to understand Zen, you have to forget Zen. So that was quite like a, an invitation to see where I was on my path. Did I have to lean on all these different um, Dharma 
instruments, or dharma tools, or appearances, we say, which is, um, or, well, could I just remove all these different, um, I wouldn't call them props, but forms, and to see if I was able to go into the marketplace with, um, I guess what they say is that barefoot and bare chest. Um, so I, I took on that um, aspiration. It spoke to me a lot. And for many, many years, we lived like a very qu quiet life, me and Carol. And um, she became a nurse, as you know, and I, I was teaching English. And when one day I had this really big um, aspiration to go back, I was very averted to business, big institutions. That was the last place I wanted to be. And I said, well, I guess the Zen spirit is like, you have to go outside your boundaries also. So I said, that, well, I just go work in this biggest, this, sort of like the third biggest corporate in France to see if my, my Zen can with, withstand and embrace that environment. So I became an Engl English teacher in this training center and this big corporation for about, I think, um, I worked there for 15 years, but on the 10th year at this training center, I was where I was teaching English, um, professional training. One, one day the director asked me, they wanted to propose different, um, this was back in 2010, different programs that might be innovative for the company. Just to tell you by during this time, mindfulness, hadn't been explored yet in France. And this is in 2010, huh? right. just to tell you. Uh, it's a little bit uh, because France is like a, a secular country where like the religion is divided from the state. So they're a little bit wary of different spiritual stuff in that, that context. But what, what happened was this director, he gave me the green light to create a program. And he asked me like, would you like to offer something? And I told him, well, I'm offering English class already. What else can I offer you? And he said, well, I think you know more than English. Right. And then to make a long story short, like we created the first uh, mindfulness program there about um, from 2012 to 2016. So it lasted about, about five, five years and it trained about 3000 people hmm. in 25 different cities. I even had some, um, some, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you remember Michael, uh, he was an Brother ex Michael, yeah. the, the abbot of one of the monasteries in France. He helped out for a while when he, he disrobed traveling around with me. That was, uh, that was, uh, uh, Fab Shen. Yeah. Fab Shen. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, very uh, yeah, beloved practitioner also in the Plum Village tradition. Uh, but uh, this program, I invited other teachers that had some sort of um, experience already. And we just uh, proposed a very like basic mindfulness program on the breath and the body, just with some like scientific information. And it became a huge success. But what I realized why I left the monasteries was like, I guess 
something rubbed off. I don't know what rubbed off in that environment because um, I was quite, yeah, quite touched and quite surprised and quite shocked and because there was something very radical that happened, you know. And ever since then, there hasn't been a program like that in France, just to, to tell you, put into context. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think there's some something that rubbed off for me being with Tayak Tan, maybe for me practicing here and here and there a little bit from time to time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and then like this kind of Dharma wave came through that that you were like surfing like you weren't yeah, so, for, yeah. Mm-hmm. so i think yeah i think there's different levels of uh, transmission but i think the the purest level is just through pr- presence presence and silence where you don't you really have to do anything or to convince anyone and there's a school, Vietnamese uh, Zen school called the Vô Ngang sect, the woodless sect, mm. which were the three main branches of Zen that was born in Vietnamese. But I'm quite in- inspired from those teachings also. I hadn't heard of that one. So the, there's the Triklam and the... There's like a, the, the, yeah, there's the Vimatuchi, which yeah. died out. The mm-hmm. Vongang Tang sect died out also. And what continued was more like we said the Chan um, Lin Chi, which is the yeah. tradition where we come from. Lin Chi, Liu, Liu Quan, which is like a sub branch. Yeah, the Liu Quan, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the Jup Lam, which is like a tentative to say that there's a form of pure Vietnamese Zen Buddhism, but um, it's really like a, everything is Zen is influenced through China. Huh? Yeah, and we can see that even through the deep, deep analysis imperatives. Mm. Um, okay, cool. So there's so many things we could talk about, uh, but today we the idea was we're going to talk about the first chapter of my dissertation. So, um, yeah, just to refresh people's memories who don't remember. So I was a monk from '98 to. 2004 with the Plum Village community. And then I spent time traveling and practicing at different monasteries in Europe and Asia. Um, Chithurst Monastery in England. Um, I did the Goenka retreat at the main Goenka Center in, in India outside of Bombay. Um, I spent time with actually your friend, uh, you mentioned Ama. So I yeah, I spent time at Ama's ashram in Kerala. Um I spent time in Japan at Taidoji's monastery, uh where his teacher uh Shoto Harada Roshi is there. Um but then I, I ended up back in India and I was with some gurus in Ramana Maharishi's lineage, and so that that's where I was until about 2010 um and then i decided i wanted to return back to lay life and so then i that's i moved back to the states and started grad school 2012 and then so now i finally finished my dissertation so that took 10 years to go <laughs> from i did a master of divinity and then 
um, a PhD in practical theology. Um, and my research is on comparing Buddhist meditation with trauma therapy. Um, and in particular, I was I'm, I compared Goenka Vipassana with Peter Levine's somatic experiencing, and then I compared um, Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings on the eight consciousnesses with just kind of general trauma therapy theory in general. Um, and the idea is I wanted to develop a Buddhist theory and practice that could understand what trauma is and respond to it using Buddhist language, Buddhist theory, Buddhist practice. Um, and yeah, what the, what's been, what has tended to happen so far is it's been more trauma therapy, um, importing Buddhist meditation into trauma therapy and less, uh, Buddhism importing trauma therapy into Buddhism. And I wanted to be a Buddhist minister doing working as a Buddhist religious worker uh, as opposed to a psychotherapist that's informed by Buddhism. So mm. um, so the purpose of the dissertation was to compare Buddhist theory and practice with trauma therapy theory and practice and then create a Buddhist model of uh, counseling um, that's trauma informed. Mm, mm. Um, so that's that. So that's kind of the, in a nutshell, story of what, yeah, um, how I got to writing this thing, and and yeah, and kind of the the gist of what it's about. Um. So do you, do you want to share anything just, just based on what I just said right there? Did you have anything come up? Yeah, I was quite curious. First of mm -hmm. all, is, the first is like what what made you really invest Yeah, really focus on trauma? Um, yeah, so when I was in college as an undergraduate at Vassar, um, my twin brother went to UC Boulder and um, my sister who's four years older ended up moving to Boulder also. And when she was there, she found this uh, body centered therapist named Stephanie Mines, who um, she trained with Peter Levine, like Peter Levine's office was down the hall. And so she had, learned somatic experiencing from Peter Levine. And then she had learned this acupressure technique called Jensen Jitsu um, from a woman named Mary Burmeister who um, learned it from Hiro Mirai, who was a master in Japan. So, um, and then she, she combined other stuff too. I'm not even, she, she combined a lot of different things, but basically I was doing once a week body centered trauma therapy with her. And at the same time, when I was in college, I was also learning how to do meditation. So I was learning the Zen meditation. I learned it from Daido Roshi at Zen Mountain Monastery. And that practice was uh, counting the breath, focusing on the hara. And 
so in general, the combination of the meditation and the trauma therapy, it was like I dropped down into my body. I kind of let go of being in my conceptual mind. And when I got in touch with my body, I had like a lot of intense um, emotions come up, basically, like uh, grief, anger, um, fear of dying, just a lot of like intense mental formations. And yeah, so it was like, I, I didn't, my like my childhood wasn't like necessarily very traumatic, but I think maybe I had like some birth trauma and stuff from in the womb. And then just, I think just kind of a normal amount of, normal amount of traumatic experiences that we go through, even if our parents do a pretty good job. Um, so basically I was doing this practice of getting in, in touch with my body and by being in touch with the body sensations, like a lot of implicit and explicit memories came out. Um, and so I was using my meditation practice and the trauma therapy practice to to just kind of metabolize or process all of that. Um, so for me, the meditation and the trauma therapy felt like I was doing the same thing. It was like when I was sitting by myself or when I was working with Stephanie, it was just kind of two different you know what they say in intrapersonal meaning just you with yourself and interpersonal you with someone else mm -hmm. it felt like the same practice um yes and so then when i ordained with ty and he was teaching about the four foundations of mindfulness and the eight consciousnesses from yogacara it felt like oh i'm, I'm still doing the same thing <laughs> uh I mean, I'm practicing mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of my body, mindfulness of emotions, and then getting in touch with deep mental formations and the store consciousness and embracing them and transforming them. So to me, it felt like uh, I could, it, for me, it's it, the, the two things have been, always been integrated with each other. And I, I've never, I've never understood them as being separate. I've always understood them as, being together um yeah so that that's yeah so i guess it's, i would just say it's been a lifelong um pursuit of mine just individually and then when i'm like teaching others i'm kind of that's that's how i'm kind of approaching it um mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, so another interesting question is um, because it, it felt like working on my trauma and healing from my trauma kind of organically led to just wanting to reach deeper levels of awakening or deeper levels of realization. Mm -hmm. So it feels like there's some kind of spectrum of experience where wanting to have a deep realization or a deep spiritual awakening is somehow very similar to trying to heal from trauma. Like there's some, I, I don't see, I don't see that process of wanting to awaken spiritually as being separate either. I see it as just a continuation of the same thing, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so does that answer the question? Yes. yes thank you. <laughs> I always give long answers, and then I'm by the end of it, I'm like, okay, did that did, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I, for me, I'm I'm just curious because um, I think it's a very important um, exploration, mm -hmm. especially people who are interested in meditation, any form of meditation or contemplative practice because as you know i mean i've lived in um before i actually became a monk i was a, lived in an ashram for two years but i think we all come to a certain path of awakening with a lot of uh, expectations and a lot of ideas of what um awakening is and i for myself i realized that we can have very deep experiences of, um, of consciousness or a true mind, but it doesn't mean that we know how to use it in a beneficial way, in a healthy way, or in a, like you said, in a very humane way, if you will. And my experience is I think a lot of um, teachers that have had a very deep levels of awakening and who really haven't done this work, it ends up in a lot of suffering. Um, and it, it has an effects on so, so many people. I mean, and we, we know this when we see different um, problems of sexual abuse, uh, exploitation, all these things and in the name of um, I guess spirituality, <laughs> and I and I think it's much more deeper than that. It's beyond like um, something spiritual, but something inherent in us—a wound. I think all of us we carry a deep wound in us, not only from our childhood. There's many, I guess, studies now between like um, that shows that we, yeah, we're regardless of where we we come from, from a any class. There, there has been uh, trauma. Yeah, trauma is just not through like poverty, immigration, or uh, like uh, violence and abuse, but it comes within uh, the household of a middle class family, very educated. I think there was a researcher named Fellini uh, many years ago that he discovered this uh, with like a group of obese, um, anorexic uh, people, women with problem disorder and his um, I guess proclamation at the end is it's not just us it's not just them it's us them meaning like w people who suffer from trauma through more like deep suffering but we see that there's traces of trauma but what I realize even much deeper in Buddhist psychology we speak about um, especially teachings that um, uh, Titnat Han has given on the healing the inner child that we also there's there's something that happens when there's a notion of separation already and I like the image that in Thai's teaching that he gives like when we're in the the womb in the Vietnamese tradition we call this like the the palace the imperial palace because um, <laughs> We get everything we want in the womb. 
the water's perfect. Uh, water temperature is perfect. <laughs> we we get all the food we want. Yeah, we get all the the nutrients, and we don't have to do anything for about nine months. But all of a sudden, one day we're exiled from this imperial palace, and then the light's too harsh, and the, it's too cold. We're hungry, and I think the the image is at this at this moment the the seeds in our deep consciousness of, of fear begins to record itself in the body of what Tai he calls original fear, huh? We're we're afraid of being alone, abandoned. We all have this feeling when you're alone in a restaurant sitting by yourself, the original fear is there. When nobody is paying attention to you, the original fear is there. And usually we seek appropriation or recognition because we go from the, to the other extreme. And the other aspect is like um, original, what Thai calls original desire. This is very particular in Thai's teaching that for me, I haven't found anywhere else. Uh, he just... Um, relates the Buddha's teaching of like tanha or grasping desire, but into the psychology of um, something very deeply human that we all have a desire to be loved, to be secured. And I think when we neglect that, we're neglecting our human aspect, which is something that could happen on a spiritual path. You see meditator, meditators that want to disassociate from their emotions I shouldn't feel sad and for me what I learned is to, to meet these emotions in a new way or uh, I shouldn't feel fear uh, I mean because you're a good meditator you should overcome fear and for me it's all sort of like a yeah learning how to discern different things and not mix mix up different things I think fu fundamentally like there's a Zen joke, Tayaktan, he used to tell me, he said, we are fully awakened when we're in deep sleep. So we don't even have to practice. <laughs> so, so that's another, I mean, don't, don't worry about being awakened because we, we're fundamentally, we're all, that awakened state is already present. But how do we, for me, what's more interesting is how do we work on these wounds that we carry? in order for the Dharma to express itself in a very uh, humane way, if you will, in a very, uh, even an invisible way. Right, so instead of um, being attached to some idea of awakening where you're going to experience like nirvana and no longer feel any suffering, and so then you can focus on that and maybe you'll even have some glimpses or breakthroughs of some kind of transcendent experience, but then you can be bypassing or not paying attention to or taking seriously just your own human experience and whatever you've gone through in terms of like wounds from in the womb or birth or childhood or um, yeah, these, these kind of deep level early experiences um 
And so then learning how to be in touch with that and relate to that as a central focus of your meditation practice. Um, and yeah, not worry so much about realizing nirvana and more just like, how can I, how can I be a, be a good parent to my inner child or get in touch with and be with just, yeah, these very simple, but also at the same time, deep emotions and sensations in my body. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, the idea of like, yeah, not trying to attain something, but just trying to be present and, and responding to what's really there and not, not trying to do anything yeah, exactly. more than that. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I think um, we know there's a Zen koan that says, who is the person reciting the Buddha's name? And when we say that, it's like we're, we have a meta-awareness of our intention of why we want to do something. Why, why do I want to become awakened? Why do I want to realize the ultimate truth? But, but I think, um, especially, I think, Western Dharma is a little bit different. I think the way it's approached, we we come to it already with a lot of goal orientation to be to become, which is not sort of like what the teaching for me the teaching is about. <laughs> we don't want to become any, anything, but I think unconsciously I did that myself. We all go into it saying that I'm going to become awakened if I become ordained if I practice. I'll be rewarded with this, you know? So I think we come from it. We don't really clarify that until I think for me, just from a personal experience is when we start really seeing when you live in an environment where people are devoted to this, like in a monastery or an ashram, you realize there's a lot of leaks that eventually <laughs> leaks out and, um, it's just the nature of humanity. I, I don't think that it's um, no one is exempt from this. And the moment we think we're exempt from it, is that's where the danger uh, lurks, if you will. Uh, here in France, for example, there's a recent documentary on the different um, abuse in the Buddhist tradition, and it's making big waves um, in France because... Um, the Dalai Lama and Matthew Ricard were very silent, so they were being criticized. And whereas uh, there's other waves of teacher that are more Western that are voicing it, um, that has more, of a, of, for me, at least a more democratic um, ethical expression uh, that, that, that even aligns with the Buddhist teaching <laughs> on, on right speech. So it makes me think how yeah, how do these powerful teachings that we are transmitted, these very, I think, timeless teaching that we, 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 we all wish to, to practice, but how do we really integrate it into the reality of our lives, which sometimes, for example, I see now I've been practicing for, for 30 years. Sometimes my life is a big mess. No, uh, I have two kids. I have a practice center. Uh, we have people that come, uh, we, we have residents here. And what I try to show them is I'm a, I'm a human being, first of all. I'm not like a, 
I don't proclaim myself to be an awakened teacher. <laughs> um, I don't proclaim myself to have a, like deep insights that they don't have. And I think um, the path is viewed in a different way also. And um, I think it's a little bit different, I guess, uh, this generation that's emerging than even what's been transmitted uh, to us from in, in the past. But I felt like just my experience with Tayak Tan gave me enough indication, a good pointer to what true practice was. Um, for example, I'm translating Tai's book into, it just it was published in, into French, uh, Scattered Memories from Parallax Press. But it's very interesting when you read his poems at the beginning, like you said, it was a lot about emptiness, uh, the absolute. But when you read his poems at the end, they were so beautiful. It was just about human relationships. But I think he was able to really know when Nagarjuna, he says, samsara is nirvana, nirvana is samsara. Conceptually, I think he was able to really embody it fully, you know, because his last poem was just like human relationship. They come and go, but so beautiful. This one moment can transform everything into eternal light. It's just like if you're present, just for that one moment, maybe whatever you're seeking for is there already. Even as we're speaking now, you know, I, I think, um, and it, it just releases the mind from the, we have to become something, you know, for me, which for me, it speaks to me a lot because you can be chasing after a lot of things and actually will never find what you're looking for. Yeah, so um, yeah, so one of okay, so one one of the things I I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to relate it to what I wrote in the first chapter, like so some of the topics that we're saying now. Um, so okay, so I so the beginning of the chapter I talk about how the scholarly dialogue between Buddhism and trauma therapy in the U.S. Um, so it started It started around 2012. Uh, there's this guy, David Trevlevin, who um, wrote a dissertation comparing um, Vipassana meditation from IMS and Spirit Rock with somatic experiencing. Um and so then, so basically over the past 10 years, there's been this dialogue. And so what I say at the beginning of the chapter is that um, so far it's mainly been between the Western Vipassana movement and psychiatrists, psychologists, neuroscientists doing trauma therapy. So this is Trevor Levin uh, coined that phrase, Western Vipassana movement, and it's um, IMS, Spirit Rock, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindful self-compassion, that whole kind of network of um, insight meditation and secular mindfulness. Um, <clears throat> and so they are teaching the four foundations of mindfulness that is coming from the Burmese Mahasi Vipassana tradition 
And that tradition is teaching mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind. And then <clears throat> they, for the for the fourth establishment, they tend to focus on the three marks of existence. Um, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. They are suffering when you are attached to them and they're not self. So that tends to be the understanding of meditation that's in the dialogue between Buddhism and trauma therapy. And because the Western Vipassana movement, they, they tend to teach for the goal of greater welfare and happiness in the present life. And they tend not to talk about favorable rebirth or liberation from rebirth. So they tend to be teaching insight meditation to um, teach being in the present moment. And then um, they call it existential insight. You're, you're trying to develop existential insight into impermanent suffering and not self. Um, so it's no longer the original transcendent worldview where you're using those teachings to realize nirvana. It's more to have existential insight. Um, and so then, so I'm saying, um, what has been left out of the dialogue is, um, Goenka Vipassana, which focuses mainly on awareness of body sensations and the teachings on the links of dependent origination. Um, that's been left out, um, even though it, even though what I argue in the dissertation is that the Goenka Vipassana is very similar to somatic experiencing, um, there's a lot of overlap in the theory and practice. And then the other thing that's been left out has been uh, Thai, as in Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings on the eight consciousnesses. So far, that hasn't really been talked about in the dialogue. So it's mainly just been using the Western psychology framework and and not using the teachings on the eight consciousnesses. And then the dialogue has mainly been to support um, Western Vipassana movement Dharma teachers to make use of um, principles of trauma therapy, or it's been trauma therapists using Western Vipassana uh, teachings, Western Vipassana movement teachings. Um, so the dialogue hasn't tried to empower Buddhist ministers, whether you're a lay or monastic. The dialogue hasn't focused on trying to empower Buddhist ministers to use Buddhist theory and practice to recognize and respond to trauma. So so my, my overall... Um, what I'm trying to achieve in the dissertation is show... Goenka Vipassana is very similar to somatic experiencing, and so you could use Goenka Vipassana as a body-centered trauma therapy technique. Mm. And then Thai's teachings on the eight consciousnesses are very similar to trauma therapy in general. Um, you can use the eight consciousnesses to talk about implicit memory and explicit memory. You could use the eight consciousnesses as an overall form of depth psychology and so, so Buddhist ministers could combine the teachings on the eight consciousnesses 
and the Goenka teachings on Vipassana meditation, if you if you put those two together, mm-hmm. that would be a complete model to do counseling work with. And it could be and that could be it would be sufficient to map, you know, trauma and respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, so the, the the only thing that has been lacking is providing Buddhist ministers, lay or monastic, the space to go through that training and then um like basically we just we need we need clinical training. Um we need the wisdom of clinical training, but um we want that clinical training to support us to use our Buddhist theory and practice. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, I guess I I I don't read whatever go on in America, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't read anything what whatever go on anywhere actually. But, yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm. It's not. I'm an American myself. Huh? I have an American nationality. I, I was born. Uh, I was raised there, not born. Yeah. But uh, I seem to be less inspired. To tell you honestly, that even though I think there's been many wonderful things that has been done, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to really uh, cri- criticize the, the different methods like the, but I think that I mean I give a lot of gratitude and a lot of recognition for what what what's been the work that's been done, mm-hmm. but I I think that also like you said a lot a lot that's been done comes from the the Buddhist practice, and uh, I think it would be worthwhile to recontextualize uh, what Buddhism, what its role could be as a contemplative practice and different uh, Buddhist model to apply that. And actually, like for the past 10 years, here is very different. I think here, I think now we're kind of ahead of the game more, more than, more than you guys mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. I think, uh, because I, I think now we're working with, with what I call like double roots practitioner, practitioner that have mm-hmm. been rooted in the Buddhist tradition, but also a clinical, uh, psychotherapist, psychiatrist. And they, they're not just, uh, and even though there are other groups that's pure secular that, for example, don't know the origins of the four foundation of mindfulness and even though it's been trained in the mbsr but uh, it's really um it's not experiential to tell you i mean it's more theoretical frameworks but for example here just this past summer there's a master's program in zaragoza by dr javier garcia campayo and he he's a psychiatrist with Tibetan Buddhist background, but um, and his program, we're invited to come to add to those elements, that to to complement mm. it, not not to to sh- to show it we're better than them because there's always a for me it's a spectrum when you talk about these two different spectrums of um, trauma and awakening. I think they they can be seen as a spectrum and not two different things. But if we neglect one thing and focus on one thing, then um, for me, it's not a holistic view. Um, I think it was Ken Wilber who said that, why do psychologists have a hard time to awake? Uh, 
and why do uh, contemplatives have a hard time to embody their their humanity, their earthly existence? You know, so I think as a new generations, we we should be rooted in both, to tell you. And and I think this is emerging because when I see your own path, I mean, this is what you you embody yourself. You know, and I think. Um, and I truly believe what Tai says, collective awake. If something, what we call awakening is not the individual, but uh, it's much more bigger than that. And um, Tai always says, once you're awakened, what do you gonna, what are you gonna do? I mean, for me, that's a good koan. <laughs> People want to awaken, but what are you gonna do? You know, you're gonna continue to consume. You're gonna continue to uh, expand, or I mean, w what does awakening produce? For me, that's another thing. But for going back to, for example, when we work here at the center, what I try to do is I contribute what I know from my Buddhist contemplative roots. But I'm not a, a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychotherapist, and I, and I think it's very complementary when there's this openness and where there's this inclusion, which is a, a paramitas in the Mahayana tradition. And if we don't have this sort of inclusion, I don't think we can move forward, and I don't think ev a conscious evolution is possible either. So I think the more there's a certain uh, groups that are really in this direction. Um, and I think, again, it's not to criticize the secular mindfulness movement, but I think they're learning as they go along. Uh, when you <laughs> And when you learn, when you go along, you see, it's like a, uh, when you're in a relationship, you know, when you're, when you're in a relationship, you learn as you go along, <laughs> you make a lot of mistakes. But I think what they happened that they didn't realize when you practice mindfulness, it's going to open up a lot of things. This is why this, this researcher, his name, you mentioned him, he talks about trauma based mindfulness. And we realize that now, when you because we're all traumatized. And when you're in a group of people, when you want to share basic meditation, some people will not do it. For mm -hmm. example, when we traveled around from the mindfulness program, it was a secular program. And like I said, in 25 different cities, but it's, it, it wasn't only to the elites or the middle class. I We went into the warehouses, we went into the bakery, blue collar worker, everyday people. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is some didn't want to meditate because mm -hmm. you saw how the, the defense mechanism of the body was so closed. And in those cases, like I never forced somebody to meditate. I said, if it's your, you can um, go to the bar if you want, but come back, <laughs> come <laughs> back. I'm not, I'm not come back when the training's over, you know, because I, I quickly realized that, um, there's a certain limit where I, I think the practice needs to be framed because we, we know with trauma is based on security when somebody, when we're being violated by, by something and when we don't have the support also. And um, any teacher, I think that's sharing this, the first we always say is to create a safe space. 
um, and for me, the environment is very important when we work with a like um, if we want to go through trauma. Our last retreat here, when we did it on trauma, we had a, a group of um, neuroscientists. So we measure fRMI scanners mm-hmm. our, to have an idea how the amygdala is already stimulated. For example, we did a there was a when we are hooked up to a fRMI and a amygdala is overstimulated mm-hmm. on a normal state. It could be that we're suffering signs of trauma already. So in that case, you know what skillful means to to offer the person, you know. And I, I think what maybe what's lacking in the movement right now that's starting to emerge with different works is like on uh, self compassion. The work of Christine Neff, for, for example, and Christopher Germer. But I think, again, it needs to be framed in the, the right environment. For me, that's really the, the key to any sort of um, deep uh, transformative work. And I think that's a good start to create trust, but actually how to move people now into an environment where they're functioning in a space to, to first be themselves, not threaten. And we know that Tai, he's done a lot of this work with like the war veterans, uh, Plum Village, uh, Palestinian, Israelians. I think Tai was sort of like a visionary on what we are learning, applying now, because uh, mindfulness has become so popular. But he, I think what I learned from Tai or what we learned was like, if you don't do the healing work first, you can transcend, but good luck. <laughs> I don't know what that transcendence would translate to. See, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I like what you were saying earlier about uh, seeing things on a spectrum. And so that's one of the kind of concepts I look at in my dissertation is um, like, so, so I interviewed six OI uh, members who are psychotherapists and asked how do they integrate Buddhism and trauma therapy together. Um, And so it was common among them to talk about different levels of intensity of trauma. So then they, they say like big T trauma versus small T trauma. Um, so big T trauma would be mm-hmm. what you would think of as PTSD that would be diagnosed in the, the, the diagnostic statistic manual. So like strong symptoms of hyperarousal, hypoarousal dissociation. Um, and then small T would be like there are some some kind of reactive habit energy that is from some unmetabolized experience in the past. It can get activated in the present, um, but it's not, the symptoms aren't intense, like full-blown PTSD. Um, And then one, one person even said, yeah, you could even say medium T trauma, right? So you could say small, medium, and big. So it's like, 
unmetabolized experience from the past showing up in the present and the, the level of intensity could be small, medium, or big. Um, and then, and then, so then I add to that, then the idea of realizing Nibbana, realizing Nirvana. So like in early Buddhist texts, it talks about the four, the four fruits of stream entry, once returner, non-returner, arahat. So that's, you have an experience of Nibbana and then one or more of the 10 fetters are weakened or destroyed, right? So the, the 10 fetters are like the deeply rooted habit energies of ignorance, craving, and aversion that manifest as identifying and attaching to the body and mind as self and that manifest as rebirth. So I'm calling that uh, deep tea trauma. And so the early Buddhism, the goal is to uh, metabolize the deep, the deep habit energies that cause rebirth. So then, so then seeing it then as a whole spectrum of like small T, medium T, big T and deep T as like the full spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then, so that right there is, I think that's, I guess that's one of the main things I'm putting forward is if you're a Buddhist trying to, to spiritually awaken, you also have to be aware of the small, medium and big T trauma and you have to work on that. And then if you're someone who's focused on healing your trauma and you want to metabolize the small, medium or big T trauma, you should also be aware of deep T trauma as another dimension um, so that's just having a map of the range of experience. Yes. And then, and then what I do is just compare traditions of Buddhist theory and practice and trauma therapy theory and practice that have a lot of similarity with each other to show that it, it seems like there's overlap in the map and there's overlap in the territory of experience. And so the ideal would be to have an integrated system where we're aware of the full range of suffering and then we're aware, we're aware of the full range of practices of how do you recognize and respond to it. So, yeah, so I guess I'm wanting, I'm wanting things to be, I'm wanting, I'm wanting people to be aware what's the full range of experience and what's, what's the full range of practice. And instead of seeing them as only one exists and the other doesn't exist or seeing it as one is in opposition to the other, trying to see it as like they're interrelated mm. and actually if you understand if you understand something about one you understand something about the other and vice versa because okay. that's so that's one of the core things also like the experience of trauma and healing from trauma small medium big t i'm arguing is very similar to the experience of the deep t trauma and healing from the deep t trauma that it's is they have similar mechanics and similar um similar process for working with it mm -hmm. so that's you you can learn what enlightenment is about by healing your small medium big t trauma and you can learn about what small medium big t trauma is about by trying to work on the deep t trauma also like yeah mm -hmm. so what are your thoughts about that yeah, for, yeah, first of all, I, I do think that 
I like what you said about the the different T's. Yeah. And how you can in, interwork with both of them. My, I guess I have a question because I'm I'm curious because I try to really, at least from how I view things, I I try to look at things from a a larger perspective, if you will. You know, I, mm -hmm. for me as a, I ask myself what. I mean, because when you look at psychotherapy in general, like Freud, his work was only just to get people to be happy in society, okay, to function in society, okay. Work and, and then after, yes. And then you have somebody like Krishnamurti that comes along and he says, "What use it, is it to be real, well adjusted in a maladaptive society?" And then we're coming to now in this like a sort of like um view as like um why is it important first of all to heal trauma and um, how is it able to heal the collective trauma collective trauma i mean with the the earth the ecology uh, different uh, discrimination so I try to look at it in the context of more is the work we're doing, is it contributing to the the larger work that our our descendants will continue in the next generation, or is it just contributing to a certain for sort of like healing work, but to to suffer more? I don't know if you understand. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> okay. And um, so th this is what I'm I'm sort of fascinated in because here, for example, when we do this sort of, sort of work, the, the the aim is to see how we can heal society at the same time. And sometimes I think when we focus on trauma, at least from my experience that I, I've seen, I've done trauma work on myself also. What what tends to happen is we're very self focused on ourselves, and I and I think a lot of the healing work is when, of course, that's extremely important. But um, the healing work comes when we start thinking about other people, and I think that's where the true healing comes. But how do we get to that process when somebody is just closed off in themselves? I understand trauma is hard day, but you take it day by day. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah. like uh, even the the simplest task becomes very difficult. I suffer from post-war trauma and even meditating for 30 years, I couldn't transform it. I, mm -hmm. I did psychosomatic uh, EMDR, for example, but along with a therapist that accompanied me, a practitioner that really helped me out a lot because it I mean even though I've been teaching and doing these things myself I think offering compassion to yourself is um, much more difficult than you might think you know and for me these these issues they hit home a lot um, just this past summer three people committed suicide in this region mm. and this is a very we're in the country we're not in the urban setting 
and I realized our, our world is in deep suffering because I've thought of these myself. These thoughts have been swimming around my own, and I don't think like without the practice, without support, um, I don't know, huh? And I just did. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know where I would be. You know. I mean, and it's like. Um, but I think once people heal and there's the right view, like you said, the the big T is like, um, for me, Nirvana is like meaning. I think that the universe is four four dimension, is time, space, matter, and meaning. And I think the highest meaning is the realization of Nirvana, at least from a practice <laughs> standpoint, because now it's like, when we work in the hospice with dying people, my, my friend, she has an image like she said, if you're going to remove your skin, it's very painful. Mm -hmm. you know? But if you remove like a, a glove, it's very easy. And she gives this image to help us contemplate is like, what do I grasp onto? And I think regardless if you believe in reincarnation or not, I mean, if you want any sort sort of freedom, it's like the question would be, what do I grasp onto, you know? And because uh, that's where we're prisoners, more or less. And the more mm -hmm. we release, the more the other is, which is the freedom or what we would say is, is nirvana, you know, the, the more we release, um, and I think at the end of our lives, for example, everyone will see for themselves what we grasp onto. You can see that now in your regular life, what you grasp onto. And I think a lot of us, if we're practicing mindfulness and we're still grasping on to our bank account, our recognition, <laughs> then that is a sort of mindfulness that needs to be, I think, re-questioned. Re um, yeah. And, so I, I, when I think about these different T's, you know, it's like how to share that within. Like I said, it's always what comes down to the individual because we're working on an individual relationship. And I don't want to like sort of like put this all in a big package, you know, and like we're going to apply this like this. But it's, I think at the end of the day is how skillful the therapist or the teacher is with a certain people so they have to know that's why i think if you don't practice you don't have an idea or if you haven't gone through your things yourself you don't have a, an idea what others are going through and you're just uh, proposing practices for practice sake which is quite because we live in such a open source world you can have zochen teachings on youtube for example mm -hmm. and yeah. um, my friend is from a tibetan tradition he said we, in the kayu tradition he said we the first 10 years we just learned shamatha you know <laughs> and, I, and i think we all want to learn zochen so fast and i i think that there's certain frameworks that is done also um of course, there are some exceptions, you know, but it seems that there's uh, more exceptions nowadays. 
Right. I think in India they say when there's more gurus than the disciples, then there's a problem. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like today everyone is a guru, so it's like it's something for me. I just ask myself, as a sincere practitioner, what do I need to transform in myself? Is it in the context of more a community and relationship? Mm-hmm. And I think that the danger of a lot of healing work, sometimes we, I've, I've met so many people that gone through the center, you know, we do some sort of healing work or another. And some people are just doing it for like 10 years, five years, mm-hmm. even rebirthing. But I, I think from, there's a point when something shifts and like the generosity it produces. But for each person, I don't know, you need, I guess causes and conditions, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's that's another thing that needs to be added into the map. Like there's okay, small, medium, big, DT trauma, but then also talking about individual versus collective, and so then, yeah, the idea of historical trauma, collective trauma, um. There's um, a psychologist at Pacifica, which is like a depth psychology university outside of Santa Barbara. Um, I'm spacing on her name. There's actually two two professors from there that they wrote a book called um, Towards Liberation Psychologies. Um, I can't remember their names because I'm bad with names. But but anyway, they, they talk about Historical trauma, as it can show up as being, well, there's three kinds, perpetrator, victim, and bystander. Yes. And so yes. that you may have within you perpetrator trauma or bystander trauma or victim trauma um, and and talking about it as a collective issue. So dealing with like racism, sexism, homophobia, um income inequality uh climate injustice various collective things ways that it can happen so then so that's one thing is like yeah being able to recognize trauma as a collective experience that we're all going through and therefore we need a collective process to heal from it so then this idea then of like integrating buddhism and trauma therapy so trauma therapy, normally you think of it as one-on-one sessions or maybe group sessions, mm. whereas in Buddhism, you think about people doing retreats, like groups of people doing retreats together, yes. uh, group practices together. So I'm I'm interested in exploring how Buddhism could provide social context where you're doing practices yes. more collectively. See what what you're interested in then we've been applying for like 10 years so right. so this is like right. this is interesting stuff because this is exactly what we do here this right. is i think intuitively this is what i i felt what is really in the spirit of non-self of into being you know mm-hmm. i don't think one person will will have all the answers you know mm-hmm. I'll give you some very concrete cases because I think it's good to be concrete in these ways. For example, um, when I was in Spain, 
we do summer courses in the Pyrenees, uh, mindfulness courses, secular, mm -hmm. purely secular. Usually it's a middle-aged group that comes, 50, mm -hmm. 60, you know, uh, midlife crisis people. <laughs> but for the first time, you start seeing younger people come. Mm. And this year, for the first time, like two 19-year-olds came to this group. Mm. But one 19-year-old world girl, woman, young woman, I shouldn't call her a girl, she came, but I saw there was deep signs of trauma, mm -hmm. uh, self-mutilation in the arms, the legs. And mm -hmm. um, I saw with the practice, uh, with because um, I think what Tai teaches also, like Dr. Bauer, somebody that's done research on the Plum Village model, he called it the continuous practice model. Mm -hmm. There's walking meditation, eating, you know, where... It's just not sitting and doing rituals all day, you know, but you're really embodying mindfulness in daily life. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're doing this for a week, but you saw how with uh, the sharing, also Dharma sharing, sharing from the heart. But slowly, this young woman, she opened up because she felt safe, simply because she didn't even speak at the beginning. Mm. But at the end, she started speaking about her own suffering. And uh, I, that's when I found out she was in a psychiatric hospital for three months, just, mm. just uh, during lockdown, you know? Yeah. And uh, she said uh, I her experience was not the most beneficial for her either. And um, what happened was I wanted to encourage her to continue her path because I think uh, as a young practitioner, we're just uh, investing in the future, you know? So we had the family, our annual family retreat here. And she came, she came mm. to help out. But I, what I re didn't realize was she was under very heavy medica medication. Yeah. And um, on the third day, she started self-mutilating herself in the bathroom. And I had to sit down with her and have a talk, you know? Mm. And uh, I realized... Like I didn't have a professional clinic clinician with with me, you know. But I had, I think I learned enough to keep it safe. But my my fear was like I said, don't commit suicide here, you know. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, to really encourage her to really, she she has the amount the amount of days here. I saw she was going back to some habits really deeply ingrained but at that moment I, I focused the teaching on self-compassion but I knew alone I couldn't do it but as a community because we are 50 people you know mm -hmm. we can do it as a community but we had so much people giving her support slowly she felt safe again mm. and what happened when she went back was she I gave her a number to a therapist I said, call this therapist first. I mean, try to, if you feel good with this person, you know, you should continue. But I, I saw how much, if that weren't in that context, imagine she's in an apartment by herself, going to a club or a bar, or, you know, you feel just completely alienated. Um, and I think the deep trauma is like, we cut ourselves off into a point at least in my case, when I thought that nobody would understand me. Yeah. And I think that's where it's very hard to come back. You know, unless you have really have some support, you know, and 
and what I, what I realized in this context is how do we work with different contexts of healing, but within the collective space. Because I think with all sorts of, like it's interesting from an evolutionary standpoint of view, we say evolution happens not within the mass, but within small groups. And like Darwin, he discovered that when he went to the different islands, mm -hmm. they were all, they evolved in so many different ways. All these species living in hundreds of different islands. And he said within that group, then a sort of like a replication transmission, what we call it, can happen. But if it's in a fragmented context, like um, like one-on-one -on -one therapy, I think plays a role. I think uh, Buddhist community in terms of a genuine community, mm -hmm. sometimes when we go into community, it's more transmission with the like more rituals, formal mm -hmm. practices mm -hmm. but i think that's that's all good i think that's all good but it can be another way to cover up uh, trauma and it, it can be another ritual mm -hmm. which, which loses its meaning you know and i think um, uh, all those uh, dharma doors are there for a reason but if they're they're not kind of like used in the proper way <laughs> then they, they become uh yeah, useless, yeah. almost, you know, I mean, and, yeah, and, and I think because, yeah, I think because a lot of the transmission comes from different cultures, and I don't think Western culture has the same language, so it needs mm -hmm. to take a new form. I'd, here in the community, I don't transmit anything that's part of the Vietnamese culture, for example, because mm -hmm. I know how important that is. Uh, I'm taking a big leap of faith, you know, I'm, I'm, we're doing things that because I, I don't claim to be a part of a tradition either, you know, I said, I've learned from this teacher, I learned from this teacher, I mean, I, I feel profoundly Buddhist myself, you know, but I know for it to really take root, at least within the French context, you got to release a lot of things, you know, but at the same time, how to keep that energy but that spirit living, which is the water, the water is more important than the container, we say. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. So then... But I don't think somebody can transform if there's not the collective context that holds that. I don't think um, a therapist can only do his work. Uh, he, he only can go or she only can go as far. And I think within a one-on-one -on -one model also, we can only go so far. But I think for more long-term, sustainable, I, I think there, there needs to be some sort of place, concrete, where you build, where there's you're evolving now in a different way. It's very interesting. For example, um, with this evolutionary biologist, David Sloan, he observed Plum Village. He came to observe and he said, it's very interesting what happens in the, this model because when you go in, everyone's a vegetarian. So it's like um, you feel different, you know, because you, now you're in another collective environment you know, or you, mm -hmm. you, you have to be mindful. You feel different right away. You know, it's not 
something explicit, no, it's something a culture that, like, uh, when you go to another country. Whereas I don't, I don't think our, I don't want to call it American Westerner because it's very egocentric. It's more a uh, cultural dominant. If we go into another culture, and we presume everybody will react in the same way we do. I guess uh, Americans have the bad reputation of doing that when we go into other countries. <laughs> we expect everyone to speak English. We expect everyone to know what's going on in America. But hey, that's that's not the case, you know? <laughs> so it's like um, when we put somebody, especially who suffer within the really a collective environment here for me nature is important because i think that's the first security who are working along that lines you know uh, pe people who conscious who working on their own suffering is a part of it also and i think that links to the yogacara philosophy because we talk about the eight consciousness and everything is being outflow and inflow from the eight consciousness and whatever goes in, we say, we'll come out, we say, with a liar consciousness. So if I'm working with trauma in the urban context, it's very limited. You're not going to go far. I don't think you're going to go far. Because imagine I do with therapy, I walk out in the world that's completely alienated. It's only going to feed my trauma even more. You know? <laughs> if I go home with a family that's judgmental, dysfunctional, <laughs> and watching television, I don't know how. I mean, I think we can heal. And it's, like you said, the small T's, I think that's possible. Mm -hmm. But uh, but the small T is coming from somewhere also. The influx, the uh, asura is coming from somewhere. And I think, um, from my perspective, that's what me I'm more interested in, you know. Um, of course, I mow my yard mm -hmm. to keep it maintained, you know. <laughs> but yeah. if I don't, uh, uh, you know, go to the roots, you know, then, then the, these roots will keep on coming back. And I think that's where we, we have to be humble. I think, I think a Western therapist who's very conventional, we have to go into it like we're exchanging, we're learning from each other. And I think the difficulty with Buddhism also maybe is like maybe we think there's a higher doctrine that's more important than all these small stuff. And I think that's a, that's a pity also. I have a friend, he works with the Kogi Indians, for example. Mm -hmm. And it's very beautiful. For the first time, they traveled around with scientists but to have a real dialogue, it's not like um, what can science, what can the Kogi mm -hmm. learn from science? Right. But to, to see, I, like actually, what you have, maybe we don't have this perspective, and I, I think that's the true meaning of any self-exploration or scientific discovery. So I think what's happening now is very curious because I think. Um, Especially in America, because I think there's more of this freedom of, of expression. Mm -hmm. But I think the danger of the American model is once a model is monopolized, that's what people will follow. That's why everybody believes in God. You know, why does mm -hmm. everybody believe in God? <laughs> I mean, that's very interesting because the collective consciousness, that's what is, is um, being conditioned. 
-hmm. but when you remove yourself from that element then you can really see clearer you know um mm -hmm. yeah so then so but to summarize yeah just the, I, I just think, think that the like the individual and the collective is a spectrum also right and when we're working with trauma we need to be really aware of how we're using the environment the people around us mm -hmm. at um, to really go on this he healing journey uh, we, we had a retreat here on trauma of, like I said four years ago with a uh, neuroscientist practitioners from different tradition and what we realized was we were able to explore that because we were in the very open space where right. everyone really respected each other and we're learning each other and there was one lady from the Chan tradition for example used to doing meditation six hours a day but she grew up in a concentration communist concentration camp and what happened was she was able to really express her trauma you know and um she said it changed my whole view of relationship mm. with my family with my son it's very and you see how she integrated with it because she was a very experienced practitioner and like she really embodies really her, her practice you know and um yeah, and there, you're in the safe space, even in in these retreats, for example, when you're triggered by trauma, people shake, mm -hmm. they just fall down, because you like mm -hmm. to go back to that, that moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, we know in somatic experience, if you do, if you go through that process, it's like something is really liberated, you know, and um, yeah. a, I think there's lots of concrete practices that, that we propose now to do that, you know, in transpersonal psychology and somatic experiencing that we can. But to, to, to like, a question I would ask is like, what happened after also, you know? What's the space that we use after we've gone through a certain experience like that? Also that I explore with different mm -hmm. um, other teachers. And I think mindfulness and daily life is a key. The key is um, community is a key also. Mm -hmm. The environment I put myself in is a key. Yeah, so that's kind of I'll just um, as a final thing, I'll just I'll mention another topic, but we can talk about it in future episodes. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, that it seems like another kind of conclusion that organically arises from all of this is oh yeah we need um to rebuild community so it could be like a buddhist temple that's a it's a congregation and that's a, a way that people experience community exactly exactly and then the other thing i feel like is um transforming education and healthcare to where instead of this being something that's done on the side, like have it be central to what's happening in education and healthcare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For for me, the, the key, like I've done this very intuitively. It's like I, I didn't have the the projects that I set out to do this, but I, I knew once I, 
when I did this mindfulness program, I said, everybody can do this. Even mm -hmm. anyone can do it, you know? Yeah. And, and what I realized is like, if there's not like a concrete place, like we know this in the ashram and the Zen tradition, you need to root. Yeah. Of course, when you're ready to do this work as an individual or as a group also, you know? And once that, that rooting is there, then it's like, now how do you make a, we talk about different kayas in the Buddhist tradition, huh? The, the Dharma body. Mm -hmm. more, and, uh, but I think we have to look at that. We have to learn to uh, apply that in a very concrete way. So for example, I see my body as this whole territory, this whole city, and the heart is the, the center. You know? And this is like, now how do I see everything as a living body when I'm creating relationship? You know? mm -hmm. Whereas now, it's been 10 years we've been here, for example, we work with the hospital, we work with the, the directors, mm -hmm. and they're not learning secular mindfulness. Mm -hmm. They're learning deep Buddhism. <laughs> and I, I mean, for me, it's like, for, for me, I, I have no, because I said, I'm not trying to teach you a, a, a religion, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I'm yeah. just sharing you the deep contemplative practice that the Buddha, he shared. And we have to eventually question different things about reality. You know, I mean, that, yeah. that's what meditation is. And what happened is now we created all these different extensions, you know, but there is part of the body actually. And it's not only about teaching meditation, but it's like community work. We share our land with a, a young woman for her horses. Uh, we have days when people come to work on the the, the, the farm, you know, mm -hmm. so it's great. I'm not, I'm not sharing them like a, everyone needs to meditate, but we're just a collective body that's trying to heal. And we're all going to heal our different teas in different ways where we're at, you know, but if we don't do it consciously, then, but people slowly, they see the difference when they come in here and when they go out there. And I think that's kind of like the main key. I had a friend, he, he worked in palliative care also. He was a doctor mm -hmm. that died during COVID. That was a practitioner also. Mm -hmm. But he worked in a very big retirement home. And I yeah. accompanied him at the time of his death. And I asked him a question for me, because I, I think at that time, our awareness is very clear. Mm. We don't, we don't have our ordinary thinking mind at that moment. It's dropped away, you know? So yeah. I said, I'm going to ask him a question so I can learn from him. And I said, with your vision now, because you have, you're coming to the pure vision. <laughs> you're coming to seeing things. And I said, what would you do if you had, um, if you can live? Yeah. And for him, it was so clear. He said, you know, I've been working on these big structures. He said, what I would do is just, I buy a small house. I take care of like 10 people, elderly people. And I, I invite maybe two or three doctors who wants to invest in it. We're not going to do it to make a thousand, a lot of money, uh, you know, but he understood that he understood mm -hmm. the, what I call like the collective body is placed right away. And I think that's the deep healing work comes from there. I think anyone who's really interested a lot of people are interested in changing the big institutions. 
um, I wish them a lot of luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think if you're really interested in deep transformation, you have to do it yourself. You, you, you mm-hmm. have to create small communities where you're applying things much faster than we're doing things much faster than the big institution. We're applying different things much, much faster because you mm-hmm. don't have to go through the bureaucracy or the politics. Everyone's aligned. We, we look in the same direction, you know, uh, yeah. in society, it's very difficult to make a decision because everyone has different views. So how are you going to come to a consensus when you have 20 different views? You're going to take 20 different, 20 years to find a consensus. (laughs) And I think within the small community, if everyone has, that's a part of evolution, conscious evolution, you have to have the same, maybe ethics or vision. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think once you establish that, then you establish this framework for deep healing to, to happen. Um, for example, I have had different therapists that come that did our the inner child retreat, mm-hmm. and they were quite amazed. They said, "What you do here um, is is very surprising because it's mm. like it's like years of therapy, like in the weekend, you know." <laughs> and, but I said, "It's just cause and condition." Like um, another point is like when we learn from the yoga chart perspective. I think Tai, he gives the image like Manas is the gardener. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do we become good gardener to this alaya consciousness, which we're, we have no control over, you know, we have absolutely no, but we can create conditions <clears throat> for things to manifest. And I think that's the key is really things, conditions are there. <clears throat> But they're using they're being used in a fragmented way, where it's not really creating like a a transformation at the base or deep transformation. And I think the the really interesting work for people who are, who who are ready for it is really like create the small base community, this environment mm-hmm. where the six consciousnesses are being nourished, you know, mm-hmm. and slowly anyone with we transform and we benefit from it, regardless of where they they're at on their path. Yeah, it's like the the fertility of the store consciousness is increased, and therefore able to embrace and metabolize whatever needs to be metabolized. Yeah, and I think in this case, Western psychology, we have a lot to learn because how we operate, the Western mind is very fragmented. We, we fragment everything and we're yeah. starting to see many people are starting to see we call this like the ivory towers mm-hmm. we're all specialists in different things mm-hmm. but problems are just getting worse more traumas more 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 depression more suicides <laughs> more violence and I, it's just a complete paradox isn't it yeah yeah so so much sophistication so much um technology intelligence mm-hmm. so much suffering so much war so much chaos on the individual collect and i think because our our vision is not yet like a holistic vision of things and i think that's where mm-hmm. we can learn a lot not only from buddhist tradition huh? i don't think the buddhists claim this but um, mm-hmm. indigenous culture 
it's yeah. unfortunately that their wisdom is extinct, you know, more or less in the Western mind. But uh, I think um, because Buddhism, I think, has a certain respect because it aligns with science, neuroscience and psychology. Even William James in the 19th century, he said this would be the psychology we'll be doing in 30 years. It's been a hundred years. But I, think, <laughs> I think there's you guys are courageous because I think you you have to do what you feel is right, you know, and not just follow some sort of model that's being presented. Because I think this model is limited within this time. Also, yeah, it's going to be outdated soon, you know, because um, we're we're evolving very f fast as human beings, and. Um, I created another big like mindfulness program for the biggest inter corporation in France. Mm. And I was invited by this director to go in his supermarkets. Yeah. And I just yeah. came to watch for one week, just how they deal with it. I, I won't say anything. I just watch you. <laughs> yeah. And I went to these big, it's like Walmarts, you know, big Walmarts. Yeah. And at the end of my stay, I was silent for seven days. I didn't say anything. Yeah. He asked me, so what do you think? You know? Yeah. Because he, he, he united like this council of um, wise people to give him advice, you know, mm -hmm. so he wanted to have a Buddhist perspective. And I told, I told him, I walked in your store and to tell you honestly, I just walked out with one, one object, you know. Because I said, I said, 99% of the things in that store will kill me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, okay. and I went back to his question because I, I asked him what was important for him. And he said, people's health and jobs. Because he was a devout Christian man in building society. Yeah. And I said, I'm, I told him I was quite radical. I said, I'm the new man. And I'm just going to walk out from your store with one thing, you know, if I'm lucky, you know, because I said the rest will just kill me. Uh, there's too much sugar in this. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have like a, a whole section with alcohol, you know, I think mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, and you, too much salt in this food. And I think you're, you're playing a, a big role why people have diabetes, why they're in hospitals, why they have high blood pressure. And I, and he was so shocked, he created like a permaculture, 10 acres of permaculture. Because uh, he was saying, wow, no one's ever said that to me before, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. said, well, I'm not here for my own benefit, you know? When, when I'm here, I'm trying to talk about the, our collective benefit, you know? It goes beyond my, my, my interests, you know? Yeah. And yeah. He, he's applying this permaculture, and he said, if it works, I try to apply it. And that is just another example of it's like once we understand what the collective field is, and there could be some sort of individual and collective transformation. Mm -hmm. But I think I don't think unless we apply it to ourselves first of all, and unless we apply it in a small scale, um, a lot of we're doing. For me, it's like a lot of wishful thinking, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay, cool. So why don't we gotcha. finish it up for today? Uh, yeah. So this was discussing chapter one. <laughs> I think we hit on the main themes of chapter one. 
uh, whether we knew it or not. Um, and so then next week we can do uh, chapter two, which is the um, literature review. So that's where I um, look at the literature of trauma between Buddhism and trauma therapy. And then I also look at, I kind of trace the histories of Goenka Vipassana, um, Mahasi Vipassana, um, Order of Interbeing, and then also the Thai forest tradition. Um, so the a central topic in the conversation between Buddhism and trauma therapy is the four establishments of mindfulness. And so my literature review gives historical context of four different Buddhist traditions, how they understand the four establishments. Um, and then I also look at the history of trauma therapy itself, going back to Freud and Charcot in France. Um, <clears throat> so I'm trying to give like the historical background to the dialogue as well as like, what's the current current state of the dialogue and, and what are some other important Buddhist voices that haven't yet been included. So that'll be next week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, I look forward to this discussion. I know it's quite large when we talk about trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I just wanted to add because sometimes we focus on the individual trauma, which I think is central. Yeah, it's central in my own healing. Mm-hmm. But I think if we take it in a more with the right view context, I think it would be easier to navigate now when we enter into more the details of what, what practice is, you know, and. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So I look forward to exploring this. Too. Okay. Cool.